This is the Edisto TV podcast, connecting the Blackwater region. Welcome back and welcome to episode 26 of the Edisto TV podcast. Happy New Year 2015, looking like it's going to be an interesting year for stuff along the Edisto. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you and welcome to you. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Um, for the rivers of South Carolina in general, we're going to have lots of new things to talk about over the next few weeks as the legislative session gets started and we continue our efforts to get some action on fixing problems with the uh, South Carolina Surface Water Withdrawal Act. And um, we have an interview this week that uh, you actually set up for us, Tom. Tell us tell us what we're interviewing on. Yeah, Dana Beach, who's the founder and executive director of the Coastal Conservation League. And uh, I just met Dana for the first time a few weeks back. And- and, um, you know, he's got quite an interesting story. So uh, I don't want to say too much, but it was it was a pleasure to meet him and, and to see uh, and learn more about some of the work that he's done over the last 30 years here in South Carolina. Yeah, it was really interesting for me to talk to Dana again, too. I first met Dana probably, oh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, working on a project for the um, Isle of Palms Connector Project. Uh, early on in their history, the Coastal Conservation League worked with the Department of Highways and the Federal Highway Department to make that project more environmentally sensitive. So I, I'd known Dana for a long time, and it was nice to have a chance to reconnect with him. We'll get to that interview in a little while, but um, before we do that, a few items we do want to cover. Uh, we met lots of people engaged with the river issue out at the Grand American Coon Hunt, our second year there over in Orangeburg, the first weekend in January, so last weekend, out there with Doug Busby and the Swamp Buggy. Yeah, uh, swamp buggy is a huge attraction. Um, if you hadn't seen a picture, we'll post one uh, with the show notes here. But the swamp buggy, um, people, especially at the the coon hunt, which is mostly you know people who like to hunt for raccoons. So I mean, it's kind of a little bit rednecky, I guess you could say. Um, those folks just love the swamp buggy, so it brought a lot of attention and. It's a great conversation starter, and it gives us a chance to tell people why we're really there, which is um, talk about the rivers and the, and the threats currently uh, to uh, South Carolina rivers. Yeah, and while we were out there, actually, we were signing people up for email updates on the river issue. Uh, this isn't just Edisto stuff, so if you're only focused on the Edisto, maybe you just want to pay attention to Edisto concerns or whatnot, but we'd love to have you know you on our list and be able to communicate with you about the river issue in general. Uh, if you want to be on that list, you can sign up by visiting SouthCarolinaRiversForever.org. That's SCRiversForever.org that you type in. And it was a treat meeting up with all the great folks who stopped to talk. Tom, we're going to have that link on the show notes. Is that right? Yeah, and uh, i just give everybody a heads up. I mean, this website's just a few days old, so Google may not, uh, as of yesterday, Google still didn't have it in its index. So you actually have to type in, you know, scriversforever.org in your address bar. If you Google it, you may not find it. Okay, but we're going to fix that over time because Tom is the man for search engine optimization. Absolutely. Just give us a couple days. And speaking of online, uh, several things new online on the Edisto Concerns page. Um, The South Carolina Environmental Law Project has the lawsuit Uh, over the Surface Water Withdrawal Act that we were talking with Amy Armstrong about in the last episode. And we have heard that now there is a hearing scheduled for that. It will be January 15th, which I believe is Thursday the 15th, before Judge Dennis at the Charleston County Courthouse. That is the Court of Common Pleas in General Sessions. 
My understanding is that hearing scheduled for 9.15 in the morning. The courthouse opens at 8.30 a.m., and it has been strongly suggested if you want to be at that, you get there early. Um, and I think we want to have a lot of people show up for that, right, Tom, and show that it's an issue of interest? I think so. I mean, it may not, uh, you know, it's probably not going to affect the judge, uh, but it will affect any press that might be there and just uh, letting folks, DHEC and everybody else that might be involved, let them know this is a serious issue. This is not just a couple of uh, environmental wackos, you know, going after the government. This is a huge problem, and there are hundreds, thousands of people in South Carolina that are concerned about this. So, yeah, I think every every chance we have to, to let it be known this is a big deal, uh, we should show up. So, yeah, there's a handful of us planning to go from Wagner uh, down to Charleston, and, and we will be there. So, please, get out and go. Yeah, and if you aren't able to make it down there, Tom and I will have an update on what happens down there next week. Uh, in the next episode of the podcast. So it'll probably be Friday before we get to episode 27 so that we have a chance to do that and then come back and put our thoughts down on that. Um, Also new online on Edisto Concerns, uh, I like this article about um, the Mead West Vaco selling their tract on the Edisto there, or at least 5,400 acres of what, nearly 72,000 acres, I think, is in that tract. so anyway, there there is this link here. Not a much more to say about that, except that looks like at least this fifty four hundred acres is going to be um, now conserved uh, by folks who who do that pretty much full time. Yeah, it was it was uh, got quite a lot of activity online. Um, a lot of people obviously thought it was uh, an important thing. Um, so yeah, I, I guess the idea is that it's right on the river. It's now being managed. You know, it is being forested, but at the same time, it's done by a group that is known to be very conservation-minded and very, uh, you know, cautious and deliberate about protecting the river. And so, it seems like it's a really good thing. Um, Rosie Price, uh, another thing. You know, uh, the book uh, by the Prices. We 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 had another post on that, but um, about the Edisto River, but. Rosie Price commented that, you know, she's worked with these guys. I know that she's worked with Mead West Vaco and now this other group, and she thinks seems to think it's a really good thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, just reading the first few sentences from the Post and Courier's article, it says a large chunk of Mead West Vaco's massive 72,000-acre East Edisto tract will go to conservation. The paper giant recently sold 5,359 acres, about 7% of the sprawling property, near County Line Road in southwestern Charleston County to Cantusi Timberlands, LLC, for $14.25 million. Uh, The buyer of the property near the Edisto River is affiliated with Conservation Forestry, a New Hampshire-based Timberland investment group. And the arrangement ensures a steady return for investors, the state retains its property tax base, and the public gets wildlife and open space, it says here. So it sounds like one of those ever-popular win-wins on the Edisto. And you mentioned Larry and Rosie Price. Uh, The Edisto River is featured in their book uh, that we talked about in the last episode. And there's a nice review of that book in the Orangeburg Times and Democrat. Uh, so we would invite you to follow the link, which will be on the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. I like the uh, the first uh, the quote here that they take from the book, which is, what, what is it about a Blackwater River that causes travelers to slow their pace, breathe deeper, and move in harmony with its flow? It draws us back again and again, the steady rhythm unchanged by time or the efforts of man, a siren song calling us to return. So that's kind of sets the tone for this book, which is mostly 
really beautiful photographs and uh, some some uh, content regarding the Edisto. So we certainly uh, think that Larry and Rosie have done a great job with that and would encourage you to check it out. And on that note, uh, we are going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with our interview with Dana Beach right after this. This is Tom from the Edisto TV Podcast, and I just want to put in a word for Tyler Brothers. They've been serving the Blackwater region for over 100 years. They have a lawn and garden center with plenty of steel and husky chainsaws, weed trimmers, blowers, plenty of Husqvarna mowers. And if you've got a lot of grass to cut, check out those Husqvarna zero-tone mowers. They have three or four different models to choose from. Check them out at TylerBrothers.net. Or if you're on Facebook, you definitely want to follow them and get the latest deals from them. You can find them at Facebook.com slash TylerBros or search for Tyler Brothers and you'll find Tyler Brothers for Carhartt Clothing. They are the place for guns and ammo, your Carhartt work clothes. They've got camo from Carhartt and Drake and many more. Work boots from Georgia Boot, Rocky, Red Wing, Justin, Wolverine, and many more. They are the place for your safety shoes, your snake boots, your camo, whatever else you need when you are out in the swamp. Tyler Brothers, since 1904, it's the place for you to be on a Saturday afternoon. They're open 8 to 6, 6 days a week. Closed on Sunday. Stay away from the superstores and visit Tyler Brothers in Wagner. Welcome back to episode 26 of the Edisto TV podcast. And we're going to jump right into our interview with Dana Beach of the Coastal Conservation League. In this episode, we're going to talk to Dana about how he and the Coastal Conservation League got started engaging with environmental issues. Uh, We're going to talk about their Grow Food initiative that has CCL engaging with farmers and agriculture. Dana's perspective on how the Surface Water Withdrawal Act has ended up being what it is today. And we're also going to begin to talk about some of the issues that need to be addressed in the existing law. Before we jump right into the interview with Dana introducing himself, Tom, anything you want to say by way of prefacing this? Uh, no, it was just good to hear his perspective. Uh, I, I really enjoyed hearing uh, how he transitioned from you know, being an investment banker to being you know, uh, environmental extremist or whatever he is now. <laughs> I, 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 I think he's a leading voice in the conservation so, uh, Yeah, leading voice in the conservation community. But um, what I really uh, found interesting, too, was him uh, talking about how he has been working with Farm Bureau and the Department of Agriculture and that, you know, it's it's managed to give him a seat at the table. And so I think um, anything we can do to break down uh, these barriers, you know, between agriculture and environmentalists, I, I, I really believe they're, they, they should be more similar and they should, don't necessarily need to be antagonists. Yeah, we certainly would get more done together than we're going to get done fighting each other. Exactly. So, and on that positive note, let's go right to the interview with Dana Beach of the Coastal Conservation League. Well, I'm Dana Beach, and I'm the executive director and founder of the Coastal Conservation League. We've been around since 1989, and our initial um, motivation and passion was to protect rural areas from sprawl development, (laughs) promoting better land use planning and um, better um, infrastructure policies. And over the years, we've, I mean, quickly got into the arena of, of water quality and, and not really early on so much water quantity. One of the early battles we fought was with the, uh, with the ag interest, big corporate ag interest who wanted to bring 
hog farming, industrial hog farming into South Carolina, and we got a bill passed that established very high standards for factory hog operations, and the result was that the operators didn't want to meet those standards, so they didn't come here, and we ended up with a very modest hog industry versus North Carolina's with 9 billion plus hogs on the coastal plain in a factory, uh, you know, factory settings. So that's basically what we've, what we've, we've been involved with dozens and dozens of things over 25 years, running the gamut from promoting better policies for locating neighborhood schools to um, stopping an interstate from coming from Detroit to Charleston. Well, I'm kind of curious how you took your, you know, your day job and, and uh, ended up maybe focusing on this um, nonprofit and, and just kind of how it, you got from 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 zero to where you are now. Can you can you give me a, a little summary of how you ended up making that move? Sure. I I was um, not sure what I wanted to do when I got out of college and therefore I went to business school and then I got out of business school and I didn't know what I wanted to do then either. But I worked at the bank and worked in New York for a consulting firm and then for an investment bank and, but ultimately decided I wanted to move back to Charleston. My wife and I met in New York and we, we were both outdoors people and interested in, especially interested in birds, but also interested in natural history generally. And uh, we love the South. She's from Richmond. I'm from Columbia. And so we moved back to Charleston. I took a variety of jobs uh, that Charleston doesn't have a whole big investment banking industry here, which probably is a good thing. Um, So I did different things and eventually got a job with Congressman, at that time, Congressman Arthur Rabinow. And Arthur was a is a Republican and one of the great conservationists of the last half century. So um, that proves that Republicans can't actually be good conservationists in the same way, of course, that Teddy Roosevelt proved that. But I had a great time working with Arthur, learned a lot of of the sort of inside information that happens when you're working in South Carolina politics and started the Conservation League uh, in 1989. I began writing a case for it, really. What I, my concern was that we were seeing you know, these federal laws in place, but they, they didn't do anything about the key issues as far as we could see, which were the conversion of this landscape from a historic agricultural farm, forest, wildlife, wetlands landscape to to subdivisions and strip malls. So um, I basically wrote a, a case, I called it, I guess, just in a description of what I thought needed to be done to supplement these federal laws. And it was funded, fortunately, by four or five foundations and some, and, and eventually uh, individuals as well. And Jane LaRoe, who was my good friend and also my first partner in this arena, and I started the league, and we had an, another person, Marie Thrower, on the staff. We started with three people in 89. And I guess we've tried a lot of things that 
many of them have worked, fortunately, and a fair number of them haven't worked, and we've tried to learn lessons from the ones that didn't work. Um, but today we've got four offices um, and about 20, at this point, 22 staff members in those offices, Beaufort, Georgetown, Charleston, and then a lobbying team in Columbia. Um, we also started a local food hub where we buy exclusively from local farmers and about 60 of them at this point and sell to local restaurants, grocery stores, and, and others. There are a lot of local food hubs around the country, but very few in the South yet. And, and Grow Food Carolina has been a huge success in that regard. And has gotten us and really more of a, I guess you call it a seat at the table in the agricultural conversation, which has been helpful because environmentalists didn't formally get along that well with the ag community. And there's still some bumps in the road, as you all well know. But um, at least we've got uh, the ability to all say we share the same vision about a healthy rural economy. It's just sometimes the details of implementation that we have to have a discussion about. Can you just maybe describe a little more about how that is playing out and, and what it means maybe for the future as we work with ag to try to find solutions that are good for everyone? Well, you know, I think we've our hope, hope and goal with both with Carolina and the policy work we do is that we can promote uh, farming that really is most beneficial for South Carolina. And, and I'll say that you know, the growth food model, which is a local food model, is not designed to replace big corporate agriculture. We we don't expect people to all begin to grow, you know, local food and eat local food. But at this point, fewer than 10, less than 10 percent of the food that we eat in South Carolina is grown here, which is ridiculous given South Carolina's historical role in agriculture. But on the other hand, it's not ridiculous when you consider South Carolina's always been a big export agriculture state. It's just the economy has just um, not been very, very strong over the last really 20 or 30 years. But whether it was rice or cotton or tomatoes or tobacco, we have, our model has been large scale agriculture and exported, most of which in some cases the early days was exported not even to this country, but to Europe. So it's kind of a different model um, to local food, but we felt like it was an important uh, supplement to what is already done here. And also we hope we'll teach people more about the importance of preserving farmland. You know, the, the around here in Charleston and Beaufort and elsewhere, the conversion of farmland to development is just uh, epidemic. And one reason is there's not enough uh, of a profit to be made by farming. You know, farming is so much of it's moved out west. And so we hope that this new model of specialty crops and niche crops, you know, grown at different times of the year and different varieties. Uh, and everybody, of course, is interested increasingly in eating food that doesn't have to travel 3,000 miles. Um, that, that's, that's a good uh, option for people in rural areas. And 
so we're we're excited about that. And and to the credit of the Department of Ag, they they have spoken strongly in favor of it. Now we're the next step is to actually do some stuff. So we're all getting ready to figure out what that doing that stuff actually means. But but it, we we think it means expanding the growth food model to other areas. You know, food hub in Greenville, which is getting you know getting on its getting on its first legs, and um, one in in Florence perhaps, and a aggregation center, so that we have a local food distribution network that covers the whole state. That's that's really our hope. I'm kind of curious on the, the the Walther's Farm thing, which I think as we you know found out about that and started talking to people. Everybody said that, you know, when they put the Surface Water Withdrawal Act together, that they had not expected a farm of that magnitude to come in and do what they were doing. Um, do you feel that way? It was a surprise to you, um, or was that kind of part of the original plan, you think, um, for that law? You know, I didn't expect it, and we were really the the primary lobbying group promoting that that law the the surface water withdrawal act and and we when we reached the agreement with the ag community to exempt farms uh from anything but registration of their withdrawal it, it versus a permitting process which as you all well know but maybe some of the listeners don't know um the difference is that the the agricultural withdrawers just register the amount they're going to withdraw, and they don't have to develop a contingency plan for low flow, which means that there's really no protection for uh, times of drought when the river is at very low levels. And um, it just is, um, it's it's only moderately better than nothing. And the reason it's better than nothing is at least we know how much is being withdrawn, and that's public record. But we don't have any uh, requirement that there be uh, any any actions taken to diminish or mitigate the uh, withdrawal impacts when the rivers are at levels that they can't sustain that level, a large amount of water being taken out. So, you know, again, bottom line on it is that the, the bill was was passed, and I think we all sort of refer to the world that we live in at the moment. And maybe to a certainly to a fault. And at the time, there wasn't any discussion of these big operators coming in. But um, that is changing. And and I've been told, in fact, that some of the Walters were discussing this that this drought in California may even may even be a driver of more big agriculture moving back to the south. And and because the south has water versus obviously California and the South also has land that's not expensive and the South doesn't have much by way of regulation. So we need to be prepared. We need to prepare ourselves for the, that potential movement. You know, food has to be grown somewhere and it's, um, and, and we look like we might be a, a destination for some of the big, uh, other, other operators like the Walker farm. The big multi-state operators. Is there a big farm, mega farm, corporate farm model that is still acceptable environmentally? That's a great question, and I'm going to just tell you first that 
I am not Lisa Taransky or Sarah Cloud. I can give you my opinion, but less with less background. But I would say this. I think corporate agriculture can learn a lot from the uh, smaller operators uh, who are more intimately familiar with their their farm because it's smaller and they're more in touch with it. And um, and also with the stewardship aspect of, of farming. You know, everybody wants to move toward lower inputs and uh, chemical inputs and petroleum inputs for a variety of reasons, health reasons, and also just the cost of, of a lot of energy going into production. You know, the what we have done over the last really 100 years is converted uh, energy into food, you know, and that ain't going to last forever because energy becomes more expensive. And uh, and by that, I mean, you know, the especially going back to the Haber-Bosch process of, of producing nitrogen by in the, fixing nitrogen out of the air, you know, we didn't, weren't able to fertilize farm fields to the extent we can now, 100 years ago. So that was the green revolution. You know, that was, a, a, in a way, that was, we went on the other, to the other end of the spectrum in terms of chemical and, and petroleum inputs. I think the, the local small-scale operators, you know, again, have a lot to show us about how to grow in a more ecological way with um, more attention to the to the variety of life forms that grow on farms. You know, it used to be when, you know, maybe when you were growing up and when I was growing up, that farms had quail. And now there aren't any quail. And that, well, part of that reason is that all the hedgerows have been, have been plowed and people, you know, they plow from fence to fence and they're just in the habitat that used to be available. There's no reason in the world that Corporate agriculture can't adopt some of those measures that promote wildlife and ecology. And, of course, a lot of the federal programs are designed to help do that, the wetland, wetland conservation program that, and the um, CRP. Uh, but really, there's a, it's, kind of a, it's a mentality, too. We've got to start thinking differently, more ecologically about farming. So in a way, I think, the um, movement of everybody toward the more sort of holistic farming, more respect for the soil and the and wildlife and and long term viability ought to be. We hope it will be the legacy of of these of this local food movement. Since you were involved in forming the original Surface Water Withdrawal Act that we're now interested in possibly changing. Um, can you talk about what you think its its strengths are, perhaps, and also what its weaknesses are as it stands at the moment? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm happy to. I'm, the, my, first of all, the, you know, this, this thing was a, like every piece of sausage that's ever produced by, by a legislature or Congress. It has all the warts and blemishes to mix the metaphors that that legislation has when it comes out of a process of debate and compromise um this one i think went too far in you know basically having agriculture not not 
required to do anything, any kind of planning. And um, but that was a political, really, that was a political decision that was made by all of us um, who were involved in the day-to-day stuff. You know, it was we just felt like Farm Bureau is very powerful operation, and they were whether anything would have passed without. That was different than the one that the thing that passed is unclear. Um, I, at our at that point, we just we just decided that it probably wouldn't have. So we decided to go with what we what we have now, and so that it sets up a framework for reporting re, uh, the amount of water that a farmer chooses it wants to withdraw, and there's some perversity in that how that is calculated or how that's determined. But um and the agency the agency, you know's implementation of it is sort of strange. But um there also is a a framework for industry to develop plans to deal with low flows so that the water levels don't reach dangerously low or unnaturally low points. You know, when it's when there's a drought, they have to come up with a way to do what they're doing and take less water. Now, it's important to note that that is, does not mean they have to stop withdrawing water. People, some people are confused about that. It it means that industry in this permitting system is um, required to develop a contingency plan, and then when there's if the water levels reach a certain point, they have to do the best they can do, basically implement that plan to conserve water, to pull water out of different locations. Maybe they have a they have a, a reservoir, maybe they have groundwater, which of course has its own set of issues. But um but the bottom line is that they have to do the best they can do and the farmers don't have that requirement. The Walters, one of the reasons we felt the arrangement that ultimately came out of the Walters debate was a good one is that they basically have a contingency plan now. And, you know, it's not probably perfect, but it's they did not have one before that. And so that was the our logic in in working to try to come up with a compromise. And I think we are, you know, people, a lot of people have different opinions about how good it was, but it seems to me that the Having the contingency plan with the groundwater and withdrawal and some of the easement agreements they made is is really a good thing. It's certainly better than it was. So, it, oh, go ahead. Oh uh, well, yeah. It just seems like um, what we got from the Walthers was um, basically what we would want if they did go through a permitting. I mean, we ended up having that public meeting, so there was a chance for neighbors to know what the heck's going on over there. I think. The public notice thing to me is a, you know, whether it's an actual, you know, how you do it through permitting, there's got to be something. You can't have somebody next door pulling 800 million gallons a, a, a month and you don't even know about it until after they start pulling the water. Absolutely. Um, but, um, and but then also, I, like you say, the contingency and the other, it seemed like we got from Walther's um, what we would like to see from every large farm. Uh, in the future, what do you think? I agree with that. I think that, that, that I mean, that was our 
feeling and our hope in working with them to, and I will say they were very, very nice to work with. I mean, I, and I say that <coughs> five years of experience working with uh, people who aren't very nice in a lot of cases. And these guys try to do the best they could do. Now, obviously, they're looking out for their own interest and their investment and all that kind of stuff. So that we all acknowledge that. But that said, they were very, they were forthcoming and I thought very helpful. So the, but, but here's my concern about the bill. And I just keep taking for a minute, leaving the Walters aside and leaving the, even the, the current law aside. This, we do not have a law in place and the current structure, not leaving it aside, does not allow us to deal uh, in an intelligent way, ecological way with the specifics of the rivers in South Carolina. It is a blunt instrument. It's a meat cleaver. It doesn't. It, you, these contingency plans are sort of generic and not great, and they don't acknowledge the specific uni- or unique differences between, say, the Edisto and the PD and the Santee, the Black River. And, and so what... So the question is, and this is, we've been struggling with this in the environmental community and, and in our office, too. What is the best way to manage a river? Because rivers do go dry at times. One, I mean, they naturally go dry. That's how cypress regenerate. And so the, the idea of a, of a dry river is not, per se, a bad thing if it's part of the natural process. But when it is unnaturally drained, that is a problem. So... How do you how do you deal with that? Well, our feeling and my feeling, and I, Lisa thinks I'm a little bit not overly optimistic about this, but is that each these big operators, let's just say, I'm going to use the old fundraising pyramid, that 90 percent of the water is pulled by probably five percent of the operators. You know, that's, that, so. But let's just say 10, you know, that 90-10 rule is what they talk to you about for fundraising. 90% of your money comes from 10% of your donors. So that means that we we can deal in a very specific way with the big operators, whether it's Walter Farms or Titan or whoever it is. And what I believe we should be doing is getting real-time monitoring of river levels where those operators are withdrawing water, real-time monitoring and real-time responses that are that are integrated into the ecology of the river. And all that, what I mean by that is we ought to have, and, and they can pay for this stuff, a, a flow meters that are adequate to give give us the, the state of the river at, at any point. You know, it's coming in on a regular basis, and they should be reporting on a regular basis, real time, how much they're withdrawing. What is safe yield? Is it taking only 80% of the river at its average annual flow? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. That, as you all have said, and, uh, you know, have, have illustrated, that, that means you can take all of the river water during certain times of the year, and it may be 3% of the year, maybe 10%. But the bottom line on it is math isn't going to get you there. It's science on-site, real-time, that is going to get us to a better way to manage water and manage water withdrawals. We don't have to manage the river. We just have to manage the people. And so 
so what we're really talking about is people management. We're managing industry and farms and, and just the withdrawers. So my thought is, in a maybe not this year, but maybe next or year after, we have something in place that, that identifies these the, the biggest operators, or and it's all relative, relative to the size of the river. A big operator on the Edisto is going to be, an operator on the Edisto is going to be bigger relatively than that same operator on the PD. So we need to have something where we have bona fide science that's being done real time in the location that the farm is 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 withdrawing and the industry is withdrawing. I don't think the industry standards are are do justice to the complexity of these rivers and the uniqueness of them. Okay. And, so the, and the beauty of it is we have the technology today in this world to do that kind of of analysis. There you know, you can turn your stereo on with your smartphone. I mean it's crazy that we aren't using the technology to give us the information that we need to 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 protect these rivers. So just just to clarify, um, you know, what we're hearing from Farm Bureau is we need more science. We need more science. Don't do anything. Um, you're agreeing that we need more science um, for the long term. But do you think that we need to have all these studies of each unique river before we change this law or can we change it now? and resolve the glaring uh, problems with it, and then keep on working toward the science that we want in the future. Well, let me, I mean, Rand, let me distinguish when I say we need to, I say we need to use the science and the technology that we have today. Well, with the, doing the study, I'm a skeptic on studies. Ecological studies are especially difficult because by definition, the most complicated thing around is an ecology. So I think it's a, I think it, it is a, it would be a diverse diversionary exercise for us to wait for the study to be completed. I would done whatever the study is. I mean, if all we're talking about is a bunch of pages with river volume numbers on it and averages and all that, it, it is the point I tried to make at a meeting we had is does the study answer the question that we are asking, which is how much water can be taken in this particular location at this particular time out of this particular river? And the answer to that is no, it doesn't answer that question. It isn't supposed to. All it does is give a bunch of... I mean, that's not what, that's not the point. In other words, so to get maybe specifically to your question, <clears throat> we know enough today generally about river health we know that when you get take more than 10% of the river out, you begin to get aquatic uh, life form changes, populations change, the you know that sort of thing. You begin to see a, an alteration in the system, and uh, it's not 80%. Uh, it's certainly not 100%. So we have a fair amount of good science out there that's uh, already available on how rivers behave. What we do not have is the specific application of that science to specific locations and specific withdrawals. And that's why I say getting into this arena, which we can do, we're technologically capable of doing it, of real-time monitoring and assessment, is 
to me, the and, and, and response, I should say that. We want to do monitoring, assessment, and then we want to figure out how to respond. You know, people, the, the folks who I've heard it said that the potato operation is whatever it is, April and May through July or August, and the low flows are during, I guess, December or whatever. Um, thank you. And so, you know, that may be true. I mean, it, 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 I mean, it probably is true. But it, but we, but in other words, we we need to put the money into a, applying the science that we have and understanding the specifics of 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 each location. That's all I'm saying. And we we don't need to do any more big statewide studies. That that study is going to help us answer the questions we need to answer. And that was Dana Beach of the Coastal Conservation League talking about the Surface Water Withdrawal Act and some of the related issues um, as far as whether or not studies are needed and what kind of data is really going to help us make the best decisions. Uh, We had an ongoing dialogue with Dana over this, and so part two of his interview where we sort of follow on from here will be in episode 27 of the podcast. Uh, As I say, that should be recorded next Friday, so it should be up, say, the 16th or 17th of January once we have a chance to do the uh, post-production on that. Um, any thoughts on what Dana had to say in this week's episode, Tom? Nope. Just uh, what I've said about a lot of the, our guests. You know, I, I greatly admire these folks that have uh, really uh, laid aside, uh, you know, their jobs and other interests, you know, to focus on uh, such an important issue as protecting our waterways and rivers and so forth. So I, I, I really appreciate him coming on and talking to us. Yep, he, he certainly has an interesting and well-informed perspective on a lot of the issues that we have been paying attention to. So that is it for Episode 26 of the Edisto TV Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all on Episode 27. This is the Edisto TV podcast, produced by Edisto TV, connecting the Blackwater region.